Hi, Dr. Deanne Ross here. I'm the Love Theorist. It's good to have you with me. Thank you for choosing to listen to my podcast. Hope you find it interesting. So uh, whether you've heard any of my preceding podcasts or not, I thought it might nevertheless be worthwhile just doing a very little summary of what I'm about and how this is a kind of a slight change point in my focus uh, in the developing of a love theory, just so you can kind of get your bearings for where I'm coming from today. So my whole purpose in developing these podcasts in the first instance is to lay down a kind of um, baseline set of ethics and values uh, to to articulate my ethical positioning for why love matters in the world, which might seem a really self-evident thing to say, but if you bear with me, I have a particular understanding of love uh, and the purpose of why I'm doing this is also particular but extremely important and expansive. So I'm drawing a lot of my influence from Bell Hooks, who talks about the love ethic as the capacity, various capacities, to respond and to want to respond to issues of just injustice and violence. And she was predominantly, but not only, talking about issues of racism in her home country of America. So I'm building this, what I hope will be, a really helpful set of ideas that we can hold in our hearts and minds on our date in our day-to-day lives and in our work and in our big moments and little moments of, uh, of life to help us know what's important in that moment and of course therefore we're talking about values and ethics are values in action in the world so for me the love theory and what I've articulated so far is based on three kind of meta think big ethics um, these being uh, the ethic of love the ethic of nonviolence, and the ethic of eco-justice or ecological justice this being relating to social justice matters relating to people environmental justice matters relating to nature and all of who she is and what she is and species justice for other animals, um, our, our, all of our kin. So that's ecological justice. So the three underpinning, incredibly important moral organising ideas to the love theory are ethic of love, ethic of nonviolence and doing no harm, ethic of eco-justice, including social species and environmental or nature justice. Early on in the podcast, I was thinking about, well, why does it matter and why do we need that and aren't there enough theories around it already and is any of it making any difference? <laughs> and before I fall off an edge of hope, feeling hopeless about everything, let me just pull that back and say one of the ideas that I have found really helpful for thinking about why, why I'm wanting to do this work and these podcasts on building a love theory is an idea that I came to from a few angles, but for now, just to say this idea of brokenheartedness, and it, it maybe is a concept that will resonate with you straight away, even if you don't know how I specifically mean it. And 
I think it can mean many things to all of us and all of that is absolutely fine. What I'm interested in is a type of brokenheartedness that comes from either ourselves being treated unfairly without love and with violence of across the whole spectrum of what violence can look like or actually witnessing violence and harm and lack of love toward others including our all our kin all of nature as well as of course our fellow human human beings so brokenheartedness to me I thought, yeah, I think this is something that we all get and all, all experience in some ways. Um, and it can help us just keep our moral compass, I guess, in situations to be clear what our purpose is when we're acting and who is it we're acting for in different situations. So this concept of brokenheartedness is underpinned by the idea of injustice, lovelessness and violence. So... This is where I've come from so far, and at times I've given examples to back up what I'm saying, which may have anchored it to some extent. Where I'm ultimately going is a kind of mix of things in this, this set of podcasts, including some conversations with people who are consciously, purposefully using the idea of love in their practice to make a difference in the world. And so that's one aspect of where I'm going. Uh, the other aspect is further exploration of the concepts I've already laid down, the, the key ethical ideas I've laid down as the basis for building a love theory. There will be a range of strategies, processes, models, practices that I'll articulate as well for how to, how to practice using love theory. Um, because theory on its own has no value unless we have some ideas about how to act in in the world to to make that difference toward love and justice, peace, non-violence. So at the moment, though, the thread I'm wanting to begin more determinedly, I guess, in terms of the space I dedicate to it, is, is looking at what I call problematics of violence. So if we remember the idea of brokenheartedness as being the reason why we need to learn how to act in loving ways, then problematics of violence are the kinds of harms and issues that, that cause brokenheartedness. And so in this kind of sequencing of podcast starting today, I'm wanting to look at the a particular problematic of violence that has been very central in my professional practice as a social worker in the mental health field. And I'm wanting to, at first, at this podcast, um, just set the scene, I guess, as to the issue of seclusion and restraint in mental health facilities against mental health patients. Um, and I'm particularly using the language of mental health patients, sometimes patients, to really accent the powerlessness of people who are placed in those roles and situations. And um, I think it is a problematic term, but that's why I'm using it. I'm using it in a very political way. So I'm actually wanting to delve into this example of a problematic of violence that I believe is one of the most morally concerning, legally sanctioned practices that we allow in our society um, in so doing I'm not actually giving an account of how key key leaders authorities 
experts see there is a place for seclusion and restraint. I'm not actually interested in that conversation because I think it just keeps us in the mindset that it has a place and we should just try to try to keep going and do the best we can given that we have to use these practices these restrictive practices from time to time so I'm not trying to provide a balanced set of points of view um, in fact after this podcast when I lay the groundwork for why I'm so perturbed and how I'm actually implicated in some of these practices in, in my past as a social worker I want to in the next podcast um, really give voice to on behalf of people who've spoken on the public domain or presented at rural commissions um, about their experiences of seclusion and restraint um, to to honor their courage in stepping forward as survivors of, of this tyrannical set of practices. Okay, so that's where we're going. Um, so today I'm calling the podcast When Care Turns to Torture. And if you bear with me, I'll give you a, a bit of an argument about why I think seclusion, and which often or nearly always includes various types of restraint, um, is a form of torture. And if that doesn't make us sit up as a society and want to do something about it, uh, I don't know what it's going to take. So if you also will allow me at this point to say that the topic is very, very troubling and very distressing. And so this is a warning that if you've had an experience of being controlled and secluded and restrained against your wishes and even if it's a long time ago or you know someone close to you who has been um, or you work in this field, just please be really careful. You don't need to listen to this podcast. You already know what I'm talking about um, and I don't want you to be be um, impacted in any sort of harmful way from listening to the podcast. Okay, so thank you. Okay, so the problematic of violence is the use of seclusion and restraint practices in public mental health systems in Australia and elsewhere. I'm focusing in Australia because I can work with the context as I talk with you better. So just as a broad comment though around this concept of problematics of violence, to me all forms of violence cross the whole spectrum from a slight slight towards someone that causes a loss of face to them uh, through to torture in, um, in the form of seclusion uh, obviously but also solitary confinement in prisons and other forts of containment practices um, surprisingly perhaps um, can be undertaken in schools and nursing homes um, yeah juvenile justice systems I think most people know what I'm talking about when I talk about the spectrum of violence that happens in our society. All, and for me, all forms of violence are problematic, um, as in not okay from a moral point of view. And the violence may be legal, which it can be quite confounding. Um, it may be accepted as a social norm. The solution may not be clear or affordable for how to do something about the violence. And I'm referring to violence in the sense that someone, like a group of people, other animals, the land or seascape, a country has been harmed and possibly had their life or sovereignty, sovereignty 
threatened or taken from them forcibly against their life force and interests. So this is a big idea of an ecological, holistic, um, whole world view of all the intersecting um, spaces, beings, entities and relationships in which violence can occur. Even if someone believes that they deserve to be assaulted by their partner, this does not make it okay and no, they do not deserve it. Of course, they're referring to domestic violence. Violence is therefore something that needs to be problematized, that is troubled, um, not accepted, challenged, um, resisted, uh, not accepted as okay, as the norm, the best we can do. I want to start uh, with a focus in this podcast on one of the most profoundly for me, and I believe for many others, concerning problematics of violence, namely the combined practices of restraining and secluding people in mental health facilities. It's all the more troubling because it's legally sanctioned and publicly accepted as a legitimate set of practices. The use of restraints and seclusion against anyone, from my point of view, and in all the literature, especially the research literature and all the, all the royal commissions around issues of seclusion and restraint, are regarded as forms of violence. So just, just to explain what these concepts of seclusion and restraint mean, and they're usually very clearly articulated in policy statements from each state's uh, Mental Health Act. So restraints can take various forms, and when we refer to mechanical restraints, they're like straps and other forms of other chains sometimes, where people are chained to chairs and beds, uh, strapped to a bed or a chair where they cannot move. Um, so that's mechanical restraints. Chemical restraint is the forced use or given under duress use of medication by authorised practitioners, usually but not only in the mental health system, sometimes in emergency wards and elsewhere. Often, but again, not only when the individual is subject to the Mental Health Act they can be forced to have what's called chemical restraint. Physical restraint um, is, the, is the bodily use of force by usually more than one person against the person who we shall call a mental patient. They're often security personnel, but also health practitioners and first responders, such as police and ambulance staff, can be involved in forcibly restraining someone physically. Emotional restraint is less recognised and very significant for our purposes, and it's the fear of being restrained due to the awareness of it happening to others or perhaps to the person themselves in their past experience when they've become distressed. So seclusion is the use of force to place an individual on their own in a room from which they are stopped from leaving. The room is locked and the individual has no personal effects with them and there's usually only a mattress on the floor. And it's it's usually in an, what's called an authorised uh, mental health facility. It's not just any locked room in any room somewhere. It's in a mental health facility, which is a public government-run institution. 
So, yeah, so these practices are defined and justified by each state's Mental Health Act and their related policies. And before I detail more about this problematic, I want to clearly state that I'm not providing a space here, as I mentioned before, for authorities or practitioners to justify the use of seclusion and restraint. And it's just another aspect of how troubled I am about this problematic of violence that when you read the seclusion and restraint policy for example by the Queensland government it's it actually starts by recognizing the harm that is caused by using seclusion um, and re and while it does go on to say everything must be done to undertake what's called least restrictive practices um, that it's recognized that at times in emergency circumstances, seclusion will need to be used. I, I just think that that leaves the door open for the continued legitimation of the use of seclusion and restraint with the full knowing of the harm and trauma it causes. I just, uh, legally sanctioned, there it is. So my main purpose in wanting to focus on this problematic of violence is, is to refuse to be complicit to the fact that it continues to happen and the rate that it happens is very hard to establish because it varies from state to state. And I remember reading some years ago now uh, by a mental health advocacy group that they had calculated that more than 30 seclusion events happened a day across Australia, across the various mental health facilities. Um, and a recent Royal Commission in Victoria has found, uh, I won't read the stats, it's hard to hold on to stats, but that has shown an alarming increase in the use of seclusion um, in mental health facilities, despite earlier Royal Commission's warning against using such practices. So while overall, I think internationally, as a trend, there is a reduction in the use of seclusion in mental health facilities. In some facilities, there's actually an increase. So my, my reasons for wanting to focus on this topic is to bring your attention to it if you don't already know about it, or to let you know that I'm aware of it. And if you've been subject to that form, what I think is a very serious form of violence, I really, really want to reach out and say I know that such experiences are happening and I feel really sad that that has happened. Um, but also to acknowledge people who work in this space. It's very complex moral, moral space. And this is by no means a critique of first responders and the mental health practitioners who are involved in the seclusion events. I'll come another day to my analysis of how, how, violence is set in law and institutions and ca cascades down through the hierarchy to leave the impossibly hard moral issues to the frontline staff to handle. So come another day, but just to say this is not a critique of first responders or direct practice um, professionals. Um, having said that, I wish to take responsibility for my part at times in using coercion against people who have mental health challenges. So just to say a little bit more about me so I can locate myself in this story and it's not like the story's over there away from me and nothing to do with me. So my background's been in several different mental health services and it made me aware of this issue. However, it took many years to stand up and be counted for at work and in my research and publications on this problematic of violence. 
I was an authorised mental health practitioner under the Mental Health Act, um, which gave me legal authority to be involved in the very early stages of invoking the Act in certain emergency situations against a person who was seen to be uh, at risk of harm to themselves or another person who was at Im this was meant to be imminent risk um, of harm to self or other where they appeared to have a mental illness and where they were refusing to go voluntarily to an emergency room, for example, for an assessment and for possible treatment for mental illness. So there's very particular requirements under the Mental Health Act for what gives people like myself at the time the right to intervene and forcibly require someone to go to what they call a place of safety for assessment against their wishes. Nevertheless, I have been involved in such events. In such situations, I've verbally encouraged and sometimes strongly pressured the individual to come to me, come with me to hospital. This was always a fraught action, as I was very aware that there was no assurance that they would get their needs met once hospitalised. That is deeply troubling to recognise that. And in the principles of the Mental Health Act, it does say that one, is, one of the guiding principles is that the person who is hospitalised will be given the care and treatment that serves them. And it does not always happen like that. I also knew I couldn't protect them from others using force or not treating them with the respect and dignity that they had the right to expect. I was not present when police or other emergency responders acted by force to restrain an individual and transport them to hospital for assessment against their wishes. I was, though, often part of a clinical team who's who authorised these actions. I was slower to grasp the travesty of justice relating to seclusion, partly due to not being directly involved in seclusion events against patients. But I was aware it was happening, and it was sometimes and it sometimes involved people I was working with in my clinical social work role as the practitioners undertaking these actions. So it's certainly cold comfort to say I wasn't directly involved. I was complicit as a member of the mental health workforce and in one mental health service, I was part of a management group. This group of senior administrators and clinicians tended to all the governance, adverse events and other business involved in running a regional mental health service. In these forums, discussions about adverse events or the outlining of statistics in different parts of the service would bring my attention to the use of force as a standard part of clinical practice that was seen as unavoidable. I had many conversations after these meetings with one of the mental health consumer consultants. This person was employed due to their lived experience of mental illness. He had an advocacy role in the meetings and the service more broadly and often made critical comments to the gathered staff, including myself. I found supporting his views in the meeting and talking with him afterwards was crucial in getting myself into a more informed and active posture towards addressing matters of violence in the name of care. My clinical social work roles were predominantly in community settings and for a short period of time I was on wards, inpatient wards, where there weren't seclusion rooms. But in one hospital, the seclusion room 
was on another mental health ward, patients could be taken to the seclusion room on the, on the other ward. So they could actually be the people I was directly working with um, being taken to the seclusion room on the other ward. Whenever I went onto that ward, I was very aware of the, of the closed seclusion room door. It was terrifying to think of a person being in there and everyone outside the room acting as if it was a normal day, getting on with their work. Patients on the ward invariably knew of the seclusion room, which would have been more terrifying for them. If they ask, they are told that individuals are sometimes secluded due to staff's concerns for other patients' safety. Other patients, therefore, will witness this extremely disturbing intervention to force an individual into the seclusion room. They may even know or have chatted with the individual. I have not directly witnessed a patient being distressed and the staff acting to have them secluded. The devastating reality for many people subjected to these restrictive practices became a central concern for me when the service took, on a took a major step in trying to address the issue. Two mental health nurses gained management approval to implement an international training program on the issue of seclusion and restraint and how to reduce and eliminate it. I had the absolute good fortune to be sharing an open office space with them and several other allied health clinicians. This afforded me the up-close opportunity to hear about their initiative and to lend my direct support to them. As the program was implemented, I heard what was happening in real time with patients being secluded. The two mental health nurses were more and more often called to help resolve the complexity of factors that led to the seclusion. The debriefs and planning for how to proceed were opportunities to contribute to their leadership. I moved from being a concerned bystander to being an ally of key leaders in the change program. Subsequently, I was part of a co-authored publication with the two mental health clinicians. Um, inspired, the publication was inspired by this initiative, which drew on research that showed how a range of efforts to enable a trauma-informed system of care can directly contribute to reducing restrictive practices. This was a breakthrough experience for me, for I could see how social workers and other staff could make a contribution to reducing seclusion and restraint, even if not directly involved in secluding or restraining a person. The public might become aware of the problematic of seclusion and restraint as violence through the print media, television news and social media. The role of the print media in portraying mental illness is complex and can provide a service, and yet at the same time, it can provide a service of educating the public. But it can also be part of perpetuating the stigma of mental illness, including that people with a mental health condition are violent. I actually want to particularly speak to this at the moment because I think it is part of what causes a paralysis of morality, I guess, of our morals to do something about the issue of seclusion and restraint. For example, in 2015, there was public outrage when a young woman, Courtney Topic, who was 22, was shot by police who were in attendance, at, but she, they were in attendance because multiple members of the public had rung the emergency number, very concerned for her safety toward herself. 
she was waving a knife around in the Hungry Jack's car park. Courtney did not have a mental illness as far as was known at the time, but the subsequent inquest into her death came to the conclusion that she had undiagnosed schizophrenia. This was reported in The Guardian in 2018. Three years after her death, at the time of the inquest, the Sydney Morning Herald interviewed Courtney's family. And what I thought was really important in that print media account was the inclusion of Courtney's parents' story of who Courtney was to them. And it really humanised her in a way that the earlier reporting around the incident and her being killed um, within seconds of the police arriving in the car park. So just a really shocking situation, um, really helped humanise her. And, and not surprisingly, the parents were calling for police training about mental illness to avoid similar tragedies. Actually hasn't, hasn't achieved that in some other incidents that have happened since. Now, the newspaper headline rang, newspaper headline was, Courtney had a knife out in public, but she didn't deserve to die. And, you know, I think this is an example of the media making a really important comment. They, they make the next statement quite profoundly, I think. 41 seconds. That's how long it took the police to shoot Courtney Topic after the 22-year-old was seen brandishing a knife outside a Sydney Hungry Jacks. Courtney caused no harm to anyone and was killed. Research shows that people with mental illness are more likely to be killed by the police than cause harm or other people's death. That is my comment about the research, that the myth is not true. Um, sometimes it is the case that someone who has a severe and enduring mental illness can cause the death of somebody else and it can be in a public place and it is incredibly traumatic wherever it happens but it then becomes part of the understanding of who has mental health conditions and what that can be in terms of people's safety etc um, so but the research shows the opposite and I want to repeat that comment I just made that people with mental illness are more likely to be killed by police than cause harm or other people's death. And one example of that research is Fuller on Colleagues 2015. My focus is on restrictive practices against people with a mental health condition who are seeking care or being forced to receive treatment. That is, my focus is on the harm done to people, not by people with a mental illness. There's, of course, there are some circumstances that are very dangerous and people can't be left to take to their own devices to threaten others. I don't want to discount this or oversimplify the complex factors that can be involved when an individual is restrained or secluded. However, I think we need to deeply hear and have sympathy, not sympathy, beg your pardon, empathy for people in these circumstances as a first step in addressing the problematic of violence. Does it matter to us? Is it part of the ethical fibre of society that we put it as a priority to reduce and eliminate the use of seclusion and restraint in mental health and other settings? This might seem like a fanciful goal, but some mental health facilities do not use seclusion and restraint. So 
have to ask the question, how do they work with complexity, potential violence, potential unsafety, high distress, um, and a mix of people on in moored situations? How do they do that without using seclusion and restraint? Okay, I want to just come come through now to the key point I want to make. Um, and the, the question is, the moral question is, are we about treatment? And is and I guess as part of that question, is is it actually even logical and ethical to talk about treatment where force is involved? Um, and so my question is treatment or torture. Uh, my ethical position is that the use of seclusion and restraint against patients in the mental health system is a form of torture. And I'm going to cite from international conventions to establish this. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Cruel and Humane Treatment argues, and this is a direct quote, there can be no therapeutic justification for the use of solitary confinement and prolonged restraint constitutes torture and ill treatment. The issue of solitary confinement is that its imposition of any duration on persons with mental disabilities is cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. So while torture doesn't have an accepted legal definition, it's understood that despite variations between nation states, that it falls within the explanation provided in Article 1 of the United Nations Convention Against Torture. And I want to quote from that again as well. For the purposes of this convention, the term torture means any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession, punishing him for an act he or a third person has committed or is suspected of having committed, or intimidating or coercing him or a third person, or for any reason based on discrimination of any kind, when such pain or suffering is inflicted by or at the instigation of or with the consent or acquiescence of a public official or other person acting in an official capacity. It does not include pain or suffering arising only from inherent or incidental to lawful sanctions. Now that is a very big statement and just to um, say I'm really sorry about the, the language of him and wish to acknowledge the diversity of gender identities. I uh, also want to just bring attention to the last sentence, which was, it does not include pain or suffering arising only from inherent or incidental to lawful sanctions. My interpretation of that is that if, if a properly gazetted mental health act sanctions the use of seclusion, then it is not seen to be torture. I actually obviously dispute that on moral grounds. So just want to make another couple of comments to tease out uh, the, the basis of my argument for considering seclusion and restraint of mental health patients as a form of torture. 
this broad statement can be focused further with the consideration of a key element of inhumane treatment being regarded as torture, namely the powerlessness of the individual. I think this is the really significant point, how powerless the person feels who's being secluded. The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman and Degrading Treatment of Punishment, that's someone's title, Manfred Nowick states that, and this is a quote again, a thorough analysis of the Trevor Perpetuaries of Articles 1 and 16 of the Convention, as well as a systematic interpretation of both provisions in light of the practice of the Committee Against Torture, leads one to conclude that the decisive criteria for distinguishing torture from cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment may be best understood to be the purpose of the conduct and the powerlessness of the victim rather than the intensity of the pain or suffering inflicted. Pretty full on, isn't it? And very devastating that this is actually um, understood at an international level to be a major issue. So just to tease out that a little bit more, significantly for our purposes, he concludes, thus, ill treatments applied in a situation of powerlessness, for example, detention, will be more likely to amount to torture. So the concept of ill treatments was very interesting here. So I see seclusion and restraint as ill treatment, as it's well established in the international research literature that seclusion and restraint have no therapeutic value. And some patients report seclusion and restraint was used as punishment or to control them because their behaviour was demanding and a range of other factors, which, you know, when I um, do the future podcast where people describe their experiences, this will become more obvious. So this idea of ill treatments applied in a situation of powerlessness will be more likely to amount to torture is, is part of the description provided by the United Nations that's in their 2010 document. My view about this is consistent with many public accounts, as I was saying, by people who've experienced seclusion and restraint. Um, profound levels of powerlessness are exacerbated by the use of medication, which I mentioned before is a form of chemical restraint in tandem with secluding the individual further incapacitates them and their ability to protect themselves and to function in any of the most basic ways needed for survival. I recognise that other stakeholders do not regard seclusion and restraint in this way, with research showing that this discrepancy between how staff and patients assess the value of these practices. No comfort should be taken from some patients reporting that they found seclusion a space where they could meditate or that they understood that they needed to be secluded because of their behaviour. I, I just don't think that can be used as a valid reason for continuing practices of seclusion and restraint. And the reasons for the, the use are multiple and complex, I don't deny that. It is deeply troubling when a state government's seclusion and restraint policy, as I mentioned before, leads with the comment of how dangerous these practices are, and that they should be used as a matter of last resort. 
However, research shows that seclusion is used in some mental health services as a regular occurrence. And from a moral point of view, for me, when less restrictive options are not being actively canvassed and developed by a mental health service, I think the use of seclusion will continue and its immorality sits there as a, as a blatant brokenheartedness for all of us if we put any any thought to it like it is to first of all believe that it's necessary that that is the best way of responding to extremely complex often volatile sometimes dangerous distressing situations in the name of mental health care to to let it be that that is accepted is i think um unbearable and causes my heart to break whenever i think about it Okay, so I think for the moment uh, I might just leave it at that and um, in a subsequent podcast give an opportunity um, to people who've had the experience of seclusion and restraint to say how that is for them to further substantiate why this is a major moral issue and why it becomes more pressing for me and, and really daunting to think about how does a theory of love help us begin to, first of all, become aware of the issues, become sensitive and responsive empathically to people's experiences and then to do something to make a difference. Um, and further further down the track of the podcast, I'll certainly be keen to share with you some of the research um, that's happening and some of the very hopeful ideas, just to flag very briefly right in a minute, that the more effort that is placed in any aspect of a mental health service to care for people to listen to people to show respect to them whether that's staff to staff relationships staff to patients staff to loved ones of patients staff to carers security guards um, and responding to trauma and not letting trauma build on trauma um, that all of those kinds of behaviors in fact gentle loving kindness and respect can start to build a safer environment with less likelihood of the need for extreme practices like seclusion and restraint. This is very hopeful. Um, okay, so hope you're okay having listened to me become fairly intense about that. This is a problematic of violence that we all, I am sure, are deeply troubled by. And the purpose in talking to you about it today is to say this is the challenge of the love theory. What can it contribute to how we think about this and what we do about it? Thank you so much. And, and do feel free to leave some comments for me. Um, and I appreciate your support. Bye now.